you're a guest with us, if it's the first time you've been at Poplar Spring, then I need to let you know a little something about our church. Uh, Poplar Spring is unique in that we are a church full of comedians. Um, many of you church members, you, you didn't even know that, did you? That right now you're in a room full of comedians. Uh, ironically, um, many of you have the same dad joke, though. You know what a dad joke is, right? It's the joke your dad would come in and tell to your room full of your friends, and at the end of it, he was the only one that was laughing. That's a dad joke. And um, the Sunday that it was announced that I had received my doctorate, I can't tell you how many of you came to me in the hallway and said, hey, doctor, uh, I have a, a toe that I need you to look at. Uh, it's really infected. I need you to check it out. A bunch of comedians, I tell you. Um, but in all seriousness... Those dad jokes provided me with a thought as I was looking at this text this week that the Bible calls us as a church a body, the body of Christ that we're referred to in that way. And so in several ways, there are similarities between our physical bodies that sometimes need a doctor and the body of Christ, the spiritual body here at Poplar Spring. In fact, the body of Christ, uh, the church can be healthy or unhealthy. The body of Christ can be uh, functioning properly or severely malnourished. Uh, the body of Christ can be uh, in need of a checkup or a, a realignment. And this morning, Acts chapter 2, the last six verses, give us that spiritual checkup. It provides us with an opportunity to ask some tough questions uh, about the health of our church, Poplar Spring. It gives us the opportunity to ask some tough questions about us as individuals, as a part of this church, what, what's, what's our spiritual health look like uh, as one here at Poplar Spring? And so as we dive into this text, I pray, my prayer for us has been that we would ask these tough questions. Um, but before we jump in to the text that you just heard read for you, I want to remind you where we've been. We've been, uh, we just started the, the study of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit has come, promised by Jesus. Jesus promised that if they would, uh, that they would receive the power from on high, the Holy Spirit has come and filled these disciples of Jesus, around 120 folks. And, uh, and, and the, uh, Peter preaches on the hills of that event. It's an incredible Christ-centered sermon. And the Spirit of God uses it as, as Peter preaches God's Word, the Scriptures of the Old Testament. And 3,000 people are saved in a day. That's a good day in the house of the Lord. Uh, no matter where you're at, uh, and the church grew like in, in, in an incredible way, and then God's showing us through this that he builds his church by his word, that as the word of God goes forth, the spirit of God uses it and builds up the church. And so as we read this, let's look for, let's ask, what is it that that church, that newly uh, given life church, what are they doing? What does it mean to be healthy in a body of Christ uh, that Christ is forming like in Acts chapter 2? So uh, I'm going to read for us, again, it's a short text, uh, verses 42 through 47, and as I do, this is what I intentionally, like, listen for this, listen for what, is it, what would it look like for me to be a healthy part of this body, what would it look like for Poplar Spring to be a healthy church body in this community? Let's read together again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and prayers, and, they, and, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attempting, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I'm going to give us four, uh, four descriptions from this text, what it would look like for a healthy church, what's this, this spiritual checkup for us as a church body. The first thing we see is that they were committed to the word of God. Uh, the very first thing that Luke mentions about a healthy body in verse 42 is that it's one devoted to the Word, to the apostles' teaching. Uh, could it be that Luke is prioritizing this characteristic because, and pri- precisely because, it informs everything else that we're about to see, not only in these descriptions this morning, but in the rest of Acts? I absolutely think so. Um, note also, many of your translations may say that they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I actually like that translation better. Um, The ESV leaves that out. But it's a more literal translation of this verse. And it's important because it shows us that a a healthy church, a church where the Spirit of God is at work, is a church that's that's continually in the Word of God with consistency. Now, being from Louisiana, I don't know a whole lot about good basketball teams. Uh, But just from being in North Carolina a little while, I've observed a few things. And uh, one of the things I've observed is free throws win basketball games. And it's incredible to watch a good basketball team or a good basketball player who's able to knock down free throws. It can be late in the game. They can be winded from from an entire game. They can be hurting from taking an elbow to the face. And they step up to the stripe and they knock them down, sometimes with over 80% success. That's incredible. It's almost automatic. When they step up to the line, you know, well, you can count these. You can add them to the scoreboard. They're as good as already being made. And it's incredible to watch. Well, how do they do that? It's by continual devotion to their task. You don't don't become a good free throw shooter by never doing it. And the same can be true of of us. Healthy churches, healthy Christians and believers are those that continually devote themselves to God's holy word. Being filled by his spirit, which these believers had just been, and being uh, continually immersed in God's word go hand in hand. They're inseparable. It shows us that here in this text. Paul also shows us this in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 verses 18 through 20. Paul says this, And do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And then watch what comes next. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are connected. That being filled with the Spirit, being filled with God's Word, go hand in hand. So are you filled with the Spirit? And are you consumed with His Word? Listen, we live in a, in a, in a culture that, that, that could be described as very non-reading. A non-reading culture. A very experience-oriented culture. I'd rather have my hands on something, doing something, watching something, seeing something, than sitting and reading. I get that. That does not give us an excuse to neglect the study of our Bibles. And be wary of a church where the Scriptures are not upheld. And rallied around like life depends upon it. Be wary of of people that would call themselves believers and there's no taste, no hunger, no desire for God's word. It's how he reveals himself to us. We can't stop there though. It's not enough for us to be a Bible-believing church. We must be a Bible-living church. And that's where we we go next. You see the the next description there of, of a healthy church in the text is one that's not only committed to the word of God, but to committed to one another. Committed to one another. If we're talking about a healthy body, a healthy church, then verse 42 shows us what their diet was. Their diet was the word of God. That's what they were feeding on. That's what they were ingesting. But it also shows us their exercise regimen. 
the first thing we see them doing, physically doing, is fellowshipping together. That word fellowship in the text comes from the Greek uh, koinonia. It means to have something in common, to share something, a commonness. There's a couple ways in which this is true in the text. First, it expresses what we share in together. That we share in, namely, belief in the gospel. That's the thing we have in common. Our commonness is that we, as a body, as a group, a room full of people, believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We have that in common. That's what we share in. But it also, this koinonia, this commonness that's described here in the text, this fellowship that they had, it expresses what they share out. (laughs) In other words, when we talk about fellowship, biblical fellowship, it expresses what we give and what we receive. What we see in the text is that fellowship cost the early church something. Very different from what we see in our use of the word today, right? Fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of unity. It's not just punch and cookies that we call, oh, this is the time of fellowship. It's not just going to naturally happen simply because we go to the fellowship hall and sit down around a table. Fellowship comes through giving. Fellowship truly costs us something. So many people will never know the joy of Christian fellowship because they'll, they'll never learn to give themselves away, to give themselves to others. Many people go to a church or to a small group, a Sunday school class or a growth group, and, and they go for whatever they can get out of it, never even considering about others' needs that may be in that group. And then they go away saying, well, there's no fellowship here. These folks don't understand, they don't get fellowship, but the truth is we'll never have genuine and real fellowship until we make it a a priority and and a practice of ours to reach out to others and give of ourselves to others. It's going to cost us time, effort, energy, gifts, talents, maybe even financially, to be engaged in in living life and community in a way where biblical fellowship is really lived out. And Luke shows us this as he continues, verse 44 and 45. If you read with me, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some of you are going to hear that and go, uh-uh, that's communism. That sounds a whole lot like communism. That, that would be an inaccurate charge, though. The church didn't abandon, abandon the idea of, of, of private property. That's not the main point of the text, but let me give you four real quick proofs that the, that the Bible is not commanding here that you sell everything you have and live in a commune. Because this scripture has been used to that end before by differing groups of, of, of Christians. Let me also say, though, before I even give you these four, four evidences that it's not commanding communism, uh, it's not beyond God to call you to sell what you have and go to the nations. It's not beyond God to call you to sell, to give up, to financially lose something to help your brother and sister. It's just what I'm making case for with these four points is that it's not commanded of every believer to sell everything they have and go live in that sort of communal living. The first, thing, the first reason we see that is stealing is still considered a sin in the New Testament. That's only possible if there's things that are being owned and held by individuals. They're still personal property. Second, verse 46 says that they broke bread in their homes. <laughs> it implies they still owned homes and property. They didn't sell everything. Number three, or the third reason that we know that's not what's being commanded in the text, the tense of the verbs in verse 45 are in the imperfect tense. That may not mean anything to some of you, but when you see verbs that are in the imperfect tense, it means that they continually happened. They kept happening. And so in verse 45, when you see that, and the verbs are selling and giving, it means they were continually selling and giving, which would have been impossible if they'd have sold everything they had at once and gave to the poor. All right? They continued to do that as there was need. 
The fourth reason, and we'll see this more next week, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Many people point to it and say, see, this is what happens when you don't sell what you have and give to the poor. No, they died as a result of their sin of lying. They were greedy and they lied about what they sold, and God kills them for it. And so these are, these are a few evidences that that's not what's going on in the text. So my point here is that, that although selling and sharing property were voluntary, they were not commanded, they were not required for obedience, generosity is not voluntary. Generosity is, is not uh, something that's up for conversation. It's very much expected. Already in the Old Testament, Old Testament believers, followers of God, had a strong tradition and expectation to care for the poor, the refugee, the widow, the orphan. And in fact, the Old Testament Israelites were expected to give a tenth of their produce to care for these groups of people. How can spirit-filled believers in Acts chapter 2 expect to be required anything less than that? It's filled with the Spirit of God. That's why this principle stated twice in three chapters. Here in chapter uh, 2 and again in chapter 4, they gave to anyone as they had need. This expectation of of gospel-driven generosity is clear to us in the text. So the Bible doesn't teach communism, but it teaches radical generosity. These early Christians basically said this, I don't need this stuff. I need to care for my brother or sister in Christ. And so if I can sell or give these possessions away so that they're cared for, so that they're served, I'm happy to do it. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God, to have that kind of love and concern for your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ. And this practice caught the attention of outsiders. This practice caught the attention of of pagan Romans who would just assume these people be killed. They even would recognize this is a generous people. Why? Because regenerate people are generous people. Those that have been born again and filled with the Spirit of God are given generosity. Notice also um, that these people, that as they come together, these outsiders make note of this, that, that they're a generous people. Think about this. The, the, the federal government can't utilize this kind of logic, right? Like, can you imagine if you wake up in the morning and you open the newspaper, if anybody even still does that, or turn on the TV and you see a headline, Americans, <laughs> pray this year, and whatever you feel led to give to this year's taxes, give that amount. And whatever that is, we feel confident that it's going to cover our needs for a nation. There's no way that would happen. Why? Because no one would do it. And if anyone did it, it certainly wouldn't be out of generosity. People would not give abundantly with generosity. America would come to a screeching halt as our our government had no budget because nobody would do it. But that's precisely what happens with the people of God. The church gives freely and voluntarily and sacrificially and generously to the work of God. This church knew their Savior. They'd seen and experienced the risen Christ, and it compelled them to a pattern of generosity. So the question, does this characterize us, church? As we're asking the Lord to give us a spiritual checkup, does, does this characterize us? Does it characterize you as a believer, as a follower of Christ? When we think of fellowship, gospel community and fellowship, we must remember it's linked with giving. If you want fellowship, you've got to be a giver. You've got to give of yourself. You've got to pour yourself out. If you want close Christian relationships, how are you pouring into others? That's the question for us. Note also verse 46. Verse 46 says that they were doing these things day by day, or some of your translations may say every day. It shows us that they shared life together. They were doing life together every every day, and and they were involved in one another's lives on a daily basis. Friends, a healthy church is a church that's together regularly. I mean, that just makes sense. I mean, half the job of being a good church member is just showing up, 
Being in the room. Being in the room with your brothers and sisters. I realize that's not setting the bar very high. But it's impossible to build healthy relationships if you aren't meeting with God's people. If you never see them. Third thing. Third thing that we see about a a healthy, spirit-filled church in Acts chapter 2, these last six verses. They were, one, committed to the Word of God, to the teaching of the Bible. They were committed to one another in biblical fellowship and in community. But number three, they were committed to worshiping God. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is huge, church family. That their fellowship, their gospel community was not only uh, expected and experienced through caring for one another, it was expressed corporately in worshiping together. Notice that the text says, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, Luke here is pointing us to the Lord's Supper. Uh, Pointing us to prayer services and meetings, formal events and occasions that took place corporately. Of course they were praying individually, individually and privately. We know that that's happening as we've already seen in Acts, and we'll see through the rest of the the book of Acts. But the point is that their worship took place in both formal and informal settings. It took place in the temple courts, and it took place in homes. It took place in large gatherings and in small gatherings. One had more structure and more form, much like what we're doing here today, and then others were more casual and more relaxed, much like what you do in growth groups or Sunday school classes. And I think today as Christians, we tend to emphasize one over the other, These early Christians devoted themselves to both. What did these meetings consist of? When they got together corporately as a body in these larger gatherings, what did it look like? Well, you see the breaking of bread. This is most likely a reference to the Lord's Supper. At that time, it would have taken taken place in the context of a full meal. They would have had a full meal, then celebrated communion at the end of it, which just shows that they were Baptists and they liked potlucks, even all the way back to the book of Acts. And we're just doing biblical things when we gather for food, so... Uh, the point is that the Jerusalem church, though, is daily reflecting upon the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. This is a part of what they did when they gathered, reflecting on his blood poured out for our sins. The apostles preached Jesus to to the ears, as we saw Peter do last week. The Lord's Supper preached Jesus to the eyes, as we see them doing this week in the text. The next thing that they said that says that happened in these gatherings is, is the prayers, right? In the book of Acts, as we study through the rest of Acts, you'll see over and over again, this early church is committed to prayer. It it infiltrated everything they did. And if you think of all that we learn about how to pray and when to pray and who to pray for from the book of Acts, it's remarkable. I mean, we'll see these as we go through the book of Acts. let Let me just give these bullet pointed to you real quick. That we learn about prayer through Acts and what the these early Christians are doing. They prayed uh, both free and formal times of prayer, as we even see in the text this morning. Believers prayed together corporately. They prayed together personally in times of, uh, of, of, of in, their, in their prayer closets, in their, in their time by themselves. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in homes. They prayed along the roads. We'll see that. Uh, they prayed when they encountered the sick. They prayed when they preached sermons. They prayed when they heard sermons. They prayed when they were being persecuted. Uh, they prayed during times of, of planned intercession. They prayed uh, over particular situations, over mission endeavors. Uh, They prayed offering thanks for their food. They prayed offering thanks for forgiveness of sins. Uh, They prayed in praise to God that their singing was often even prayer. Uh, They prayed offering up petitions to the Lord to meet their daily needs. Like life depended on it because often it did. All of this reminds us that a healthy church is a praying church. We have an opportunity for communication with the God of the universe. Shame on us if we neglect it. 
what else does this passage teach us about their worship? Well, it shows us that there's this balance between the formal and informal, uh, the aspect of worships, but it also shows us there was a, a balance in their posture in worship, right? We see this in the text. Their worship is described as both joyful and reverent, right? There's no doubt that their, their worship is characterized by joy. You see in verse 46, they had glad and sincere hearts. Uh, the New English translation says that they had unaffected joy. I love that. That their, their, their joy was unaffected even in the midst of suffering, which will come. And this makes sense. God had given his son into the world to forgive sins. He'd given his spirit to live inside his people, to lead them in truth. There's an abundance of reason for joy. And it characterized their worship. The worship service should be full of joy. Our gatherings on Sunday mornings when we meet as God's people should be a celebration of what Christ has accomplished. It should certainly be full of joy. John Stott said this, It is right that public worship be dignified, but it is unforgivable for it to be dull. Is our worship characterized by joy? At the same time, their joy, their rejoicing in worship, their celebration in worship was not irreverent. If joy, right, follow me, if joy from God is an authentic evidence of God's spirit at work, then so is the fear of God. That's what we see in verse 43, that everyone was filled with awe, with fear, with reverence, with respect. God had visited their city. He was in their midst, and they knew it, and they bowed down before him in humility and wonder. So what's my point here? It's, it's wrong for us to imagine that public worship, what we're doing right now, has to be either reverent or joyful. I think we separate these and say, well, it can't be both. They're not mutually exclusive. They're actually supposed to both be there, joy and awe, rejoicing and celebrating and fear and reverence before our God. Formal and informal. They're both there. And the fourth thing. What's the fourth thing we see? So far in the text, we've considered their study of God's word, their commitment to the word of God, their commitment to one another, fellowship, community, and we've seen their worship, their commitment to worshiping God. These first things that Luke describes to us, saying that they were devoted to these things continually, all three of the first three that we've mentioned have to do with the interior life of the church tells us nothing about the compassionate outreach of the church. Tens of thousands of sermons have been preached on verse 42 by itself. Taking 42 by itself and preaching it as a, what we're doing this morning, a diagnosis or a checkup for the church. And those sermons are an illustration to us of the danger of preaching one verse of Scripture in isolation from its context. Because you shouldn't take verse 42 by itself and build what the church should look like around verse 42. Because if you do, it presents a very lopsided picture of the church. you got to take verse 47 with it. Verse 47 must be considered when you consider verse 42. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those first Christians were not so preoccupied with Bible study and with fellowship and with worship that they forgot about witnessing to their lost neighbor. As we see in the text, we can't forget that we serve a missionary God who has created a missionary church for his purposes. I think there are at least three lessons here that we learn from this text, in particular verse 47, as it applies to our outreach, our evangelistic opportunities, our sharing the gospel with our neighbors. So real quick, I'll give you those three observations, those three lessons that we can learn here from the text as it concerns our outreach. First, the Lord himself, that's Jesus, 
must accomplish it. Uh, Look at verse 47 again. The Lord added to their number. He did it. Now, to be sure, he did it through the preaching of the word. We already witnessed that last week with Peter. Peter goes and preaches the scriptures and the Lord saves. To be sure, he does it through the witnessing of church members. That as they go out and share the gospel with their neighbors, people come to faith in Christ, to be sure. And, and to be sure, he, he did it through the display of love and affection and fellowship and community that they had toward one another to a lost world. That as the world looked around, I said, something's different about those folks. Why do they give up? Things. Why do they sacrifice? Why do they lose possessions to help out the poor? Certainly the Lord did it through those things, yet the point is that he did it. <laughs> this is a much needed word for us, for the church today, that he is the head. Christ is the head of the church, and it's his prerogative to admit people into its membership and bestow salvation from his throne. He's the one that has accomplished it and bestows it. Many people talk about evangelism with this sort of air of self-confidence. That if we say the right things, or if we do the right things, or, or if we present the right evangelism strategy, then it's effective, and it, and it works. And it, Christ uses his word to accomplish his purposes, and he's the one who does it. We must remember that. Second truth or lesson that we learn here about our outreach, our evangelism in this world, is that what Jesus did, he's the one accomplishing it, What he did was twofold. It's two things that are inseparable from one another. Continue with me in verse 47. Look at what he does. It says he, one, added to their number those who were being saved. So he added to their number, second, those who were being saved. Those inseparable actions here are what Jesus did. So that means that he did not add to the church without saving them. There's no such thing as nominal Christianity here. Nor did he save them without adding them to the church. Meaning there's no Lone Ranger Christianity here. There's not not a category wherein you can be a believer of Christ and not a part of his church. Do you see that in the text? He added to their number those who were being saved. Let me make it as simple and as clear as I can. Salvation, which Christ bestows, and church membership belong together then... Verse 47, and they still do today. If I could just take a moment and be completely transparent with you this morning, it absolutely scares me to death that we have names, and not just a few, in our church membership that in six years of being a member and pastor of this church that I've never met. And there's some, I've only been here six years. There's some of you that have been here decades, and there's some folks on our membership that you've never met. And so what we're saying, and here's why this scares me to death, here's what we're saying, that by them being counted among our number, by them being in our membership, then what we're saying, based on this verse of Scripture, is that they are born-again followers of Jesus. They were not added to their number unless they were being saved, verse 47. And so we're effectively saying that though we haven't seen them in a decade, though the FBI could not find them on a Sunday morning, that they are born-again believers and that God has placed them here. Am I the only one that feels the weight of that? That as pastor one day I will stand before God and as their shepherd give an account for their souls and I've never laid eyes on them. These two things go hand in hand. That he was adding to their number those who were being saved. Third thing we see about our evangelism here, we have to take this stuff serious. 
The third thing we see here is that the Lord added people daily. It teaches us that their outreach was a way of life. It wasn't just a program that they occasionally or sporadically did throughout the church year, like an initiative, like, oh, this month is evangelism month. Or, maybe this hits a little closer to home, it wasn't just that they took a few mission trips throughout the year, and while they were on the mission field, they shared the gospel, and then they came back home and their lips were sealed. No, that just as worship was daily and happening day by day, so was their witness happening day by day. Praise and proclamation were both the natural overflow of their hearts that were full of the Holy Spirit. And the effect of that overflow was a continual flux of converts, an ongoing stream of people that were experiencing the new birth, that were repenting and believing and having faith in Christ. And I wonder, church family, as we're sort of being honest this morning and having a, a spiritual checkup for our body, do we as Poplar Spring even have a category for that? Like, what would it look like? Like, can we even imagine what it would look like if next Sunday I brought in my neighbors that I had shared the gospel with and they believed upon Christ and were saved? And the next Sunday, somebody else brought in their neighbors that had, had heard the gospel and trusted Christ for salvation. And then the next Sunday, somebody else brought in a family member that they shared Christ with. And every Sunday, somebody else was added to our number because they had believed and, and professed faith in Christ that week. Do we even expect that that could happen? healthy body church family are we one here at poplar spring and are you a healthy part of one here at poplar spring in the time i have left i want to use tony marita takes and gives what he calls some vital signs for a healthy church for a spirit-filled church and uh, i want to do a, some searching this morning in each and every one my prayer for us as we've been uh, planning for sunday is that each and one of us will take this text and these application questions that I'm about to present to you. And be, be honest before the Lord. Does this characterize my life? His vital signs concern the four commitments that we just outlined in the text. Biblical nourishment, loving fellowship, vibrant worship, and outreach in word and in deed. Most of these are questions. So I'm just going to ask you some tough questions. Consider your own life. Consider this church. As it concerns biblical nourishment... Do you understand the gospel? Let's start there. Do you understand the truths that must be believed in order to be born again? Do you understand the gospel? Are you sitting under the authority and the teaching of the Bible regularly and humbly? Are your brothers and sisters, or do you have brothers and sisters who are admonishing and encouraging you in God's word? Are you submitting to hard truth? that you see in the scriptures, and repenting in light of it? Are you being renewed by the gospel day by day? Are you teaching the Bible to others, to anyone else? Is there anyone in your life right now that you're explaining the scriptures to? The early church loved the word of Christ, and they loved the Christ of the word. They needed the word personally. They needed the word corporately as a body. They needed relationships that were centered on it, and so do we. The scriptures tell us we can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do we trust that that's true? Second, second area, second vital sign, if you will. Loving fellowship. Do you have fellowship, first of all, with God through Jesus Christ? Do you have fellowship with God through Christ? And are you working at building deep relationships with others in the church? Is that something you're working at? Could it be that you love the idea of community more than the actual people that you're in community with. Here's a big one. 
Are you complaining about a lack of community rather than asserting yourself to serve and love others in this congregation? Do you show up to events and meetings faithfully? Here's, here's a kicker. Do you arrive early enough to interact with people on Sunday, or are you more like a ninja who slips in late and leaves early so that you don't have to interact? Are you involved in others' lives throughout the week, even if it costs you something? It's going to cost something. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost you maybe having to drive somewhere. It's going to cost maybe even money. It may, may take energy, effort. Are you involved in others' lives, even if it costs you something? Are you sensitive to the needs of your brothers and sisters? Are you even in community such that you would know if your brother or sister has a need? I wonder if we just need to start there. Instead of asking, are we, are we caring for one another's needs? Are we close enough as a church family to know if I had a need or if she had a need or if they had a need? Are you grateful for your brothers and sisters? That's a real practical way you could start this morning. When was the last time you went to a brother and sister in Christ and said, Brother, I'm, I'm thankful for you, and here's why. Or sister, I'm thankful for you, and here's why. Are you grateful for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you told them what they mean to you? Being devoted to one another, as we see that they were in the text, implies two things. Work and accountability. Being devoted to one another, as a church family, published Spring, means work and accountability. Are we committed to that? Community is a two-way commitment. We have to work at it. Most of us are not naturally good at it. And in our particular context, think about our church, church family. In our particular context, because we are so spread out, this is even more difficult. If you were to map our homes on a map, we're spread out from Wake Forest to Franklinton to White Level to Raleigh to Rollsville to Middlesex. I mean, we're all over the place. It makes it even more difficult, but not impossible. Why? Because God desires it for you. And by his spirit, he can do it, even if there's miles between us. Third vital sign. We've looked at biblical nourishment. We've looked at gospel community, fellowship. Third vital sign, vibrant worship. Are you praising God with other brothers and sisters in large and small group gatherings? Are you a part of that? How do you approach the Lord's table? We're about to get to. And here's the thing. I think, I think so often we can err in one of two ways. We can do it flippantly where we don't even think about it at all, or there's a problem in the church today, maybe not even in our church, I'm not sure, where it's it's, it's presented as so serious that it becomes solemn. Friends, it's a serious thing, but it's not a solemn thing. We're not going to a funeral. We're going to a celebration. We're remembering the death and resurrection of Christ for our sins. It's a celebration. So how how do you approach the table? You attend worship gatherings repentantly and joyfully, full of awe, And full of joy, full of rejoicing. Are you praying with brothers and sisters in Christ? Here's a a big one for, I think, a lot of folks. Real real pointed question here. Have you ever prayed out loud in front of someone else before? Are you grateful for the opportunity and the freedom that we have together like this every single week? Are you more concerned? Here's a kicker, too. Are you more concerned with the secondary matters of the worship gathering? So, for example, the style of music, the length of the sermon... Uh, what attenders to worship are wearing or with the primary matter of the worship gathering, which is lifting high the name of Christ. Vibrant worship, does it characterize us? Friends, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today, right now, this day, that if they could be given their one wish in life, one wish, 
given one wish in life, it would be that they would have the freedom to do what we're doing right now in this moment. And yet, instead, they risked their lives and their families week after week to meet in secret because this, this worship gathering, is more important than life itself for them. I think when we wrap our heads around that, worship becomes a lot more vibrant. It becomes a lot more part of what our lives are about and not just a tangential thing that we do. When we gather, remember what the the privilege it is to hear the word of God in our language, to sing with brothers and sisters that believe the same truths that we believe, to worship around the communion table or down at the creek as we watch baptism. It's a privilege and it's a joy and it's an honor. The last vital sign is our last one. Outreach in word and in deed. As it concerns word outreach, how are you doing at speaking the gospel to unbelievers in your networks and the places you go? Are you doing Philip evangelism? (laughs) Where you go and you literally speak the gospel to the people around you in your neighborhood, in your home, in your workplace? Are you doing Andrew evangelism? Remember what Andrew did. He goes and invites, come with me. Come and see, come and hear, come and experience this. What about deed evangelism? Are you involved in ministry to the poor? Are you caring for anyone that's going through tough times right now? Are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ as they have need? Are you practicing gospel-driven generosity? Can you think of a time, this is a very pointed question, can you think of a time when it's cost you personally something, time, effort, money, to care for, to reach out to, to love on someone that doesn't know Jesus? Marita offers this challenge to his church, and it's the way we'll wrap up this morning. He called it the 555 challenge, and I, I think I, it would be incredible if we would commit to something like this as the people of God here at Poplar Spring. So 555 challenge. So think of five places in your life, and you can write them down if it helps. So think of these five places. Your family, your job, where you live, where you shop, and where you do recreation, right? So family, job, those two are pretty obvious. Where you shop, grocery store, gas station, the places you go frequently. Where you live, that's your neighborhood. And then the fifth one, your places of recreation. So soccer field for people that have kids in, in sports. Dance uh, you know, halls uh, for those that do ballet or gymnastics or whatever it is that you do for recreation. Hunting and fishing around the pond. Whatever it is, the places you go for recreation. Think of those five places. Now think of five unbelievers that you run into in those five places. They can all be from the same place or they can be spread out across those five places but think of five unbelievers from those five categories and then commit to do at least one of these five things pray for them serve them in some physical way give them gospel-centered literature say well I don't have any of that there's a whole rack of it right here you can take as much as you want today on that speaker Uh, invite them to an event to a worship gathering or speak the gospel to them think of five people from those five places and commit to pray serve, give them gospel literature, invite them or speak the gospel to them. It would be incredible to watch what the Lord does with the faithfulness of his children through the, through the, the, the presentation of and the giving of the gospel and the word of God. Could you imagine what God would do in our presence if we were faithful? As we wrap up, the, the picture that we see here in Acts, these last six verses of chapter 2 is remarkably simple. These believers did the basics well. They they didn't have a bunch of gimmicks or tricks to win people. They didn't toy with people's emotions. They didn't offer some false, fake, sugar-coated gospel, some prosperity gospel. 
they did the basics well. And it's so easy for us in the busy lives that we live with all that's going on around us, uh, an experience-driven culture, not a word-driven culture. It's easy for us to get away from the main thing, right? The main things. As we respond to the Word of God, I pray that these six verses are a, a checkup for us. Are we faithful as a church? Are we healthy as individuals as a part of this church? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that it would convict, challenge each and every believer that's here this morning. That as we think of what you've done in our lives by giving us Christ to die in our place, to take the, the just and right punishment for our sin, that you've filled us with your spirit. And these things are the outflow of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. God, I pray that that truth would resound in our hearts today, that as we respond to the text, you would form Jesus in each and every one of us and look, make us look more and more like Jesus. And God, as we take a time to respond to your word and come to you and your table, God, I pray we'd be reminded of the gospel, that none of these things are what save us Christ's blood has saved us, and these are the overflow. These are the outworking. These are evidences of a saved life. So we'll give you this time. Pray that you would be with us as we respond. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we respond this morning, we're going to get to do one of the things that this first church, this early church, was doing when they worshiped Jesus. They gathered around the table. And the Lord's Supper is a proclamation that we are, one, in fellowship with God, and two, in fellowship with one another. That's what we're saying when we gather around this table. So as you partake today, that's what you're saying to everyone in this room. I'm a born-again believer, follower of Jesus, in right relationship with his people. The Lord's Supper is also a commemoration of Christ's death. So as you partake today, you're joyfully acknowledging that you've been redeemed. You've been offered mercy through faith in Christ. He's forgiven and restored you. That's why we don't allow kids to partake in this. It's not that we don't like kids. It's that, that, that they've never trusted Christ, been baptized as a picture to the lost world that, that they're a follower of Christ. The Lord's Supper is, is also a time of renewal for God's people and the body of Christ. So therefore, as we observe communion this morning, God's also doing something. He's knitting us together as a family in unity. He, he's setting us apart from the world. He's reminding us of our salvation and giving us assurance of redemption that he has purchased for us. All of that's taking place when we gather around this table. And so participation in the Lord's Supper is designed for believers who have been baptized by immersion into a faithful body of Christ. And so we invite you this morning, Poplar Spring or anyone who's with us this morning even visiting, that if you're a believer in Christ and in good standing with a, a church of like faith and practice, we invite you to join with us this morning. If you're not a believer yet this morning, we pray that this picture of what you're seeing would be a call to you, a proclamation of the gospel that Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed, and if that truth this morning convicts, it shows you your sin, and it shows you that someone died in your place, so that the next time when we do this, you're doing it with us. You give your life to Christ, you repent of your sins and follow after him. That's our prayer for you as we gather around this table. So I'm going to read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We see this command given to us by the Lord. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to be with us, to bless our time, and thank him for his broken body and his shed blood. After I pray, though, you come.
form two lines down the, the center aisle. You can come by and receive the elements and go out on the side aisles. And you can partake right here, or you can partake when you get back to your seat. But don't wait on your elders and deacons this week. You take when you're ready. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup. And after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim his death and his resurrection that was for our sin. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for communion. For your table, that's a sign, it's a symbol for us of Christ's broken body and shed blood. His blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Your word says there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus was that for us. He was the one who tasted the cup of your wrath, Father, for our sin. The just and right punishment that we deserved, he bore in his body. So we thank you this morning, Jesus, for broken body and shed blood. And I pray that by your spirit, as we celebrate, as we observe, as we rejoice in this observation of communion, that you would knit us together as a family, that you would join us together in the truth of the gospel, that you would embolden us to be witnesses to a lost world, that you'd remind us of our salvation. We give you this time as we respond to your word. Have your way in our hearts.